Hi everyone and welcome to episode 102 of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host Rick Cole and each week we take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years and we report on all the hockey news that was taking place way back then. This week we're looking at the week of October 4th to October 10th 1971. Now, I wanted to just give a little personal note as we start off today. Uh, I spent yesterday at the Johnny Bauer Foundation uh, luncheon in Milton, Ontario. This is a, a foundation started by Johnny Jr. and John III, both uh, really interesting guys. And uh, a very, very worthwhile cause. I took uh, the old Maple Leaf goalie, Ed Chadwick. To the, to the event, and a lot of uh, former Maple Leafs were there. I got to talk a bit with Mike Krushelniski, Bobby Bond, Jimmy Morrison, Kevin McGuire, Pat Boutet was there. It was a really nice event. Spent some time with Joe Bowen, who was uh, an outstanding master of ceremonies in this thing. Anyway, it was a really interesting day. Lots of old hockey players there, a lot of old hockey fans there. Got to renew a few acquaintances. It was really quite an interesting day, and we hope in a, in a future episode we'll have a little bit more on the Johnny Bauer Foundation. If you like what we do every day on Twitter right through the hockey season and of course our podcast each week you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and you can subscribe. Now subscribers not only get early access to each week's podcast episode on the Hockey Podcast Network but we also uh, offer some very special content that's available only to the subscribers. Uh, we recently put up a very lengthy discussion that we uh, had with ourselves on the advent of the World Hockey Association, and we're going to be doing a lot of those through the season. There's just too much news to put in each podcast each week, so very uh, uh, detailed subjects like the World Hockey Association. We're going to take a deep dive into those subjects uh, two or three times a month, maybe more often as, as news uh, permits and warrants. And we're going to give you the lowdown on how it was being reported as the World Hockey Association was formed. And there's a lot of interesting bits in there that most people will have forgotten or didn't even know about at the time that were reported in more or less obscure news uh, news uh, media that we didn't you know, living in Canada that the states reported that we didn't even know about. So we're going to have all that for you through the year as well. Again, if you'd like to subscribe, patreon.com slash hockey 50 years. So this week, 50 years ago, the 71-72 NHL training camps were wrapping up. Uh, all the preseason activity was coming to an end and the season preparations were pretty well complete for mo most of the teams. The NHL season got, got underway by the end of this week and we have uh, some reports on the first games that took place along with the news that directly preceded the for real games. And we bring you uh, uh, the notes and some uh, maybe a few uh, guesses on what was going to happen during the season right now before we get into some of the more interesting opening game results. The Flyers were 
hopefully showing signs of things to come in the preseason games. They were working on, as the week wound down, a league-leading 6-1-1 preseason record. Six wins, a loss, and a tie. And remember, in uh, those days, there was no overtime. The Flyers were buoyed by great goalkeeping from Doug Favell, Bruce Gamble, and an unheralded rookie by the name of Don McLeod, who he'd been drafted from the Red Wings, and he was pretty much destined to be the odd man out in the goalkeeping picture in Philadelphia. What was particularly encouraging for the Flyers, and this would bode well for the future as we would all eventually learn, was the way the players on the Flyers were responding to the new and often unorthodox methods employed by their new coach, Freddie Shiro. Earlier in the week, and this would actually play out over the the span of the week, the uh, Canucks and the LA Kings were talking over a trade that would send veteran goalie Charlie Hodge south to Southern California. Now, the teams apparently agreed on whom the Kings would send north to Vancouver for Hodge, but the stumbling block in the deal was whether Charlie would agree to report to Southern California. Remember, he was an original Oakland SEAL, and he might have just had enough of the California lifestyle experience. Now, to try and help things along, the Canucks gave permission to the Kings to talk to Charlie about a contract extension, that sort of thing. And the Kings, with the Canucks' permission, flew Charlie down to L.A. to show him around and sell him on the many advantages of life in La La Land. Didn't work. After setting a deadline of Tuesday afternoon to get the details on a swap completed, absolutely nothing materialized between the two teams because Charlie simply said he didn't want to go to the United States. The Canucks, by the way, were really, really happy to see how well their second-year man, Dale Talon, was performing in preseason games and training camp. He had taken on the role of the power play quarterback, and what was a real issue for the club last season seemed to be drastically approved this time around. And in fact, the Canucks were feeling that their power play with Talon running things was going to be one of the team's strong points. And by the end of the week, Vancouver coach Hal Laco had decided that his number one goalie this season would probably be rookie Dunk Wilson, a former Flyers farmhand whom the Canucks had acquired in the 1970 expansion draft. That was one of Bud Poyle's better picks, I thought, because he wasn't banking on another tired old veteran. He got that in in his uh, first pick with Charlie Hodge. He wasn't banking on a guy that was going to be around. He actually left Wilson in the minors for the entire 70-71 season. Looks like it did the kid well, and he's ready to assume the number one role. But interestingly enough, it was veteran George Gardner who got the start in the Canucks' first game. This is news that was completely expected and uh, well-deserved. The Montreal Canadiens announced that this weekend's home game, their first game of the season, they would retire sweater number four, which of course was worn by the recently retired Jean Beliveau and before him, the great Aurel Joliat. There had been talk that the next great Hab, already anointed as such, young Guy Lafleur, would be given number four, 
with John Beliveau's blessing, but to his credit, the rookie asked for number 10, so there was no uneasiness about decommissioning the fabled Habs sweater number 4. Little bit of news out of the city of Hartford this week. They're building a new arena in the downtown. It's going to seat about 10,000 hockey fans. And of course, there was all kinds of talk about what hockey team would go in there. Well, guess what? The uh, hockey team that's supposedly going in there isn't a WHA team. There was, in fact, a, a nice editorial and a couple of articles in the sports section of the Hartford Current, and the WHA was not mentioned even once. Uh, it is thought that the Hartford city of Hartford wants an American Hockey League team, but what they're going to end up with, unfortunately, as their uh, sports uh, reporters were saying, is an Eastern League team. The uh, New Haven Blades, I believe they were named in the Eastern Hockey League, were being displaced by a new American Hockey League team in that city. So the Blades Eastern League team was apparently going to move into Hartford, and a lot of, not a lot of people were happy about that. Maybe there's another team somewhere that might locate in Hartford. We'll see. Well, this time uh, in history, most NHL teams were doing. Uh, the same thing. Heading a lot of from the states north to Canada, training there, and then with about a week to go before the season starts, they break camp, head back to their, their home city. Uh, one such team that was doing that this week was the Pittsburgh Penguins, who trained in Brantford, Ontario. Their coach and general manager, Red Kelly, he was really happy with the progress of the Penguins during training camp. Generally, this team was regarded as going to be a more veteran squad this season, but Kelly let it be known that a good number of his vets would likely be moved out to make room for the promising kids who looked ready for at least a trial in the big time. Among those veteran players whom Kelly was working hard to trade away as training camp was winding down were forwards Dean Prentice, Kenny Schinkel, and Billy Hickey. And by the end of the week, Dean Prentice would be the first to move out as the a real quality veteran left winger was sold to the Minnesota North Stars in a straight cash deal. One veteran of the Penguins who wasn't mentioned as trade bait was goalie Les Binkley, and he's going to stick around the Penguins to mentor young Jimmy Rutherford. Rutherford was picked up from the Red Wings in the draft during the offseason, and Jimmy is by Red Kelly regarded as the Penguins' goalie of the future. Uh, he was going to be with the big team no matter what, probably as a third guy, but now he's going to actually get some playing time because as the week drew to a close, the other veteran that the Penguins had in goal, Roy Edwards, and you remember Roy had a fractured skull last season, retired. Kelly took a chance on him, drafted him from the Red Wings. Roy came to camp, but at the end of camp, he was plagued by headaches, and he told Kelly he was going home to Caledonia, Ontario, to th which is not far from Brantford, by the way, to think about things over, and it was quite likely that he wasn't going to play this year. Now, one veteran who did stick with the Penguins is a, a veteran minor leaguer who's had a couple worlds in the NHL with Boston in the 60s, Bobby Leader. Bobby Leader did a great job, and he said during training camp, I knew I had to prove I could score goals when I came to this camp. 
Bobby said he had to prove he could do the job in the NHL and that he knew it was up to no one but himself. Bob said, if I showed him I could do the job, I figured they'd keep me, and they did keep him. Bob Leader's last NHL appearance was one game for the Bruins back in 1968-69. Minnesota North Stars will have their first, uh, actually, actually, yes, I guess you could say their first homegrown player. He was drafted Minnesota native Gary Gambucci, a forward, and according to coach Jackie Gar- Gordon, he's won a spot on the North Stars roster at least to start the season. He's played very well in training camp. He scored a few goals, and it looks like he's going to have a third-line role with the North Stars to start the season. Minnesota native Gary Gambucci. Here's what a stinking hot mess the California Golden Seals were at this point in their history in the fall of 1971. They had an exhibition game scheduled this week, a couple of them in fact. They were so thin on net-minding talent for an exhibition game, not even a real game, that they had to approach the Maple Leafs and Jim Gregory, general manager of the Maple Leafs, loaned them veteran goalie Marv Edwards to play an exhibition game. Now, Marv was slated to play for the Western Hockey League, Phoenix Roadrunners this year. Marv was happy about going there. He wanted to be in the NHL, but he knew with Bernie Perrant and Jacques Plante, there was no room there. So he was happy to go to the WHL. And here the Leafs said, Marv, we're going to give you maybe a, a shot at going to the NHL. They lent them to the Seals. This is another goof by SEALs general manager Gary Young. He hadn't even figured that he wouldn't have enough goaltenders around training camp. There weren't, well, there was one in injury, and that was a Jerry Desjardins and, uh, injury, of course, from previous season. And that was Young's fault because he didn't do his due diligence. So now what happened? Well, they were just looking for anybody to fill, fill a jersey to get on the ice. And that guy this week would be Marv Edwards. And if the Seals liked what they saw of Edwards, there was a good chance that they would arrange a trade with the Maple Leafs. Well, later in the week, the Seals did get a goalkeeper, one they thought was pretty good. Again, not doing your due diligence. The the Seals sent forward Tony Featherston to the Canadians for former first-round pick Ray Marteniak, a goalie out of Western Canada. Now, if the Canadians had determined that they they wasted a first-rounder on this kid, Marteniak, why did the Seals think that he could solve their goalkeeping issues? The fact that the Habs took a marginal talent like Tony Featherston in exchange for Ray Marteniak tells you what plans they had for young Ray. And he would go to California, and of course, we'll probably report during the season on how often and how good, how well, I should say, that Ray played for the Seals. Well, National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell said this week that the, quote, stupid spectacles of disorder, otherwise known as bench-clearing brawls, is of great concern to those who run the National Hockey League, and very strong steps have been taken to curb such nefarious activity. Of course, history shows us that whatever the league said it was doing to fix this so-called problem was little more than paying lip service to the issue 
And they were doing that to pacify the bleeding heart softies who didn't approve of the NHL's particular brand of sporting violence. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not, a, I was never a big fan of fighting in hockey. I engaged in a few while I, even as a goaltender, but I never really saw the point of it. The 70s were just getting underway in the ambitious National Hockey League. They wanted to bring in as many new fans as possible, and that included the Walmart crowd and the roller derby and pro wrestling factions that they figured would fill American rinks to see Canadians beat their brains out. A little more SEALs news. We never, we always have SEALs news. This week, Charlie Finley told reporters that his California Golden SEALs would forfeit the first league game coming up this Friday if the National Hockey League did not void the trade they made with Chicago last month that sent Gary Smith to the Blackhawks for Jerry Desjardins and others. And of course, Jerry turned out to be unfit for duty thanks to that badly broken left arm. Desjardins' absence from the SEALs lineup, of course, left the team with no goalies with NHL experience, and they felt that the Hawks knew that Desjardins wasn't healthy and sold them a bill of goods. The SEALs didn't feel that it was incumbent upon them to make sure, knowing full well that Jerry had been badly injured in the spring, how well he was doing by, by September. They relied only on a medical report filed by a doctor in June when things seemed to be going very well. By the way, the Seals did not forfeit their first game against the King and the issue was not resolved. And we'll tell you a little more about that game later on. What was billed as the ultimate hockey helmet arrived on Canadian markets this week. It was developed, I think we've told you about this before, by a fellow named Charlie Patterson from Mississauga, Ontario. It was heavily padded, had ridges to kind of deflect injury, much like Jacques Plante's goalie masks. And uh, the padding was much more uh, solid than uh, previous models, I guess we'd have to say. The lid was being marketed by, get this, the Canadian General Electric Company, and they obtained the marketing rights from Patterson. The helmet sold for about $5, but in a very curious marketing strategy by CGE, it was only being sold through General Electric dealers and not in sporting goods stores, at least not at the beginning. Canadian Tire, I think, later did carry it when they were selling about three helmets a month. Parents really, at this point though, had no way to compare the headgear that GE was putting out there to anything else currently being sold. And who goes to a refrigerator store to buy one specific piece of hockey equipment? Here's an NHL veteran who found himself in very strange surrounding this week, and this story made me kind of sad at the time. The New York Rangers sent Ron Stewart, the veteran right winger who previously played for the Leafs and for Boston, they sent Ron to the American Hockey League to the Providence Reds. Now, Ron had been in the NHL since the 1952-53 season, and up until now, he had never played even one game in the minor leagues. 
the word was out there that uh, Rangers general manager Emil Francis was trying to trade Stewart, but he wasn't really working very hard at it because he really didn't want to get rid of the veteran, figuring he would be insurance against injuries that often crop up during the season. You know, so he said, well, you know, we really don't want to get rid of Stu. We're going to keep him down in uh, Providence just in case we need him. Now, that seemed to me to be a pretty shoddy way to treat a respected veteran, especially a guy who could step in and be a main cog in minor, in uh, expansion teams like Vancouver, Buffalo, or, of course, the Seals. Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo, uh, lovingly known as The Odd, was ready for puck drop for the opening new season. We have a little bit of a story on that in the uh, Globe and Mail from, uh, I think it was Buffalo hockey writer Charlie Barton, if I'm not mistaken. They don't have a byline on this one. The expansion of Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo was completed only hours before the 31-year-old arena was reopened for an exhibition game between the Buffalo Sabres and the Detroit Red Wings, a game that ended in a two-all tie. Despite a series of work stoppages due to labor disputes, the 17-month remodeling program was completed only six days behind schedule. And that really was quite remarkable. The roof was raised 24 feet and additional 4,500 seats uh, were installed in the balcony that was constructed. While the arena was uh, built as a public works administration project in 1940, uh, for it was $2.7 million that it took back then, the cost of the expansion program will be just about $10 million, $9.5 million right around there. Only the installation of an escalator to the upper tier of seats has to be completed, and that job was expected to be finished in about three weeks. Now, my season tickets for the Sabres in those days were in what would become known as a lower bowl. They started out as being in the upper reds, and in a couple of years they would be or in the lower blues, they would end up being upper reds in a couple years. The program to rebuild the auditorium began in April of 1970, but was halted by a strike in mid-May. Since then, strikes by painters, ready-mix concrete drivers, have further delayed the operations. The seating capacity raised from one, from 9,817 to 15,170 for hockey. The Sabres are the main tenants, of course, but the Buffalo Braves of the National Basketball Association are going to be playing games there. Now, the, this game between Detroit and uh, Buffalo attracted 14,992 fans, just about 15,000, and that far exceeded the pre-roof raising capacity, but it was still 178 short of a sellout. But then again, remember... It was the Detroit Red Wings that were in town, and Buffalo hockey fans were smart enough to know what a, what a garbage mess that team had been. And it was an exhibition game, and a lot of people were still unsure about this whole new arena expansion thing and just how good it might be, given they hurried, like furiously hurried, to get it done on time. But everybody had a good time. It was a wonderful evening. It was a 2-2 tie. The home team against an original team from the pre-expansion era. So guess what? It was a successful night, and the whole thing would turn out to be a pretty good idea for Buffalo. 
And by the way, the Sabres, one of the final cuts from the Sabres training camp was veteran forward Reggie Fleming, who actually looked well on offense during this camp. He scored a few goals, but Punch Imlach just said that, you know what? I got kids that I got to play, and I'm going to play them. So Reggie goes to the Cincinnati Swords, and uh, we'll see how Reggie gets along with Joe Crozier down there. Los Angeles Kings general manager Larry Regan is pumping up the tires of his uh, team who were surpassed in aptitude last season by only the California not-so-golden seals. Regan said he's moved out all the deadwood on the team and the club is ready to climb the ladder in the National Hockey League's Western Division. Regan says his number one goalie, at least to start this season, is going to be Gary Edwards. Gary Edwards, who has a total of 64 minutes of NHL playing time, all with the St. Louis Blues. And what about Dennis DeJordi, who was brought in uh, last season when Regan was moving out Deadwood like Bill White and Jerry Desjardins? Really? Deadwood? Well, Dennis DeJordi and his very significant salary are still around the Kings, but... He's not even ready to start the opening game. That's going to be Gary Edwards. Now, Regan is trying to trade DeJordy, but he can't sign, seem to find any takers. Not even the Seals would take him on. We have trouble uh, in the Western Hockey League, often thought to be second to the National Hockey League in quality, right, even with the American Hockey League. But there's word this week that the San Diego Gulls may fly the coop from that West Coast city. Their owner, the owner of the Gulls, pays $720,000 a year in rent for the arena in San Diego, and that is more than twice what any other WHL team pays for rent in their rinks. And now, to make things worse, the New World Hockey Association is making noise about putting teams on the West Coast and this does not look good for the Western Hockey League. Well, hockey's back and DraftKings Sportsbook has an unbelievable offer to celebrate the greatest sport in the world. New customers can bet just a dollar on any hockey game and win $100 in free bets if either team scores a goal. Doesn't matter if it's a one-time clapper or a deft deflection. However they light the lamp, you're going to win. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contest. DraftKings has given all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network. Throw down $1 on any hockey game and win $100 in free bets if either team scores a goal. This week, one puck in the nets nets you a big win with promo code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook. You must be 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. A minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager is required. One per customer and some restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for all the details. Got a gambling problem? Call one 800 Gambler. 
And don't forget our other two sponsors, newspapers.com. They allow us to do all the research to bring us uh, bring you this great hockey news. And uh, couldn't do it without them. And the Breakwall Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Colburn. Great food, amazing craft beer. And if you're ever in the area, get a hold of me and we'll have a beer at the Breakwall. This uh, World Hockey Association thing was making some news this week, and we're going to give you the highlights going on with that. If you want to get down and dirty with the details, please subscribe. The uh, special episodes we're giving the Patreon customers have details that uh, I'm sure 50 years later, very few people even would have known back then and certainly don't remember now. The week began with a news conference by the WHA in, of all places, Calgary, Alberta. The uh, WHA wanted owners to join them up who were willing to stick with it for three or four years until parity is reached with the NHL. Good luck with that. Dennis Murphy, an advertising executive from Santa Ana, California, is one of the founding uh, powers behind the league. He told a news conference that anybody who says parity could be reached sooner with hockey's major league the NHL, would be completely out of context, which is just nice words for saying you're nuts. The association hopes to compete with the NHL, and they plan on open on October 4th, 1972, with no less than eight and no more than 12 teams, and that came from President Gary Davidson, and he, of course, is out in the Los Angeles, Santa Ana area as well. Among the areas considered are three Canadian cities, Calgary, Edmonton, and Winnipeg, and 13 U.S. locations, but Davidson was quick to point out in this uh, press conference that no franchises at this point had officially been Awarded. By the way, uh, Davidson is a corporation lawyer, and he's going to be president of the league for three years. Of course, where did he come from? The American Basketball Association, who was not far at this point from merging with the NBA. Eleven of the areas that have been considered have what they call option clauses, according to Davidson. And that includes the three Western Canadian cities. And these areas must declare their intentions by November 1st. That's the date the association is going to meet in either New York or Chicago to select the franchises and name its owners. Now, Davidson in this press conference said the other cities being considered were Miami, Atlanta, New York, a city in Ohio, probably Dayton, the Carolinas, no city mentioned, Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Paul, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Kentucky, Indiana, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. Bob Tate of the Calgary Herald said that Calgary's bid to be part of this new league might actually depend on what happens in Edmonton. Bob wrote that the future of Major League Hockey in Western Canada would appear to be in the hands of Edmonton's flamboyant redhead Bill Hunter, often called Wild Bill, and his financial associates. For it's in Edmonton that the uh, operational doubts arose Monday as the WHA outlined their plans in that press conference. It seems certain that as Edmonton goes, so goes Calgary, and of course Winnipeg would probably follow that script as well. Edmonton, according to Pate, is uh, without anything resembling a major league arena at this point in time, and it, they didn't have any plans for one. But Tate says that's at least 
as plans that have become public knowledge. What's going on in the background? No one knows. The Edmonton Gardens seats 5,200 people, and according to Bob Tate, completely, totally inadequate for professional hockey. But undaunted as usual, Wild Bill Hunter says he likes his chances. Hunter said, the way I see it, you don't postpone a good thing. You have to get in on it now or don't get in on it at all. And I think the chance will not present itself to us anytime soon once again. So Hunter was asked, well, how do you figure you can put a team in a rink like the Gardens that only has 5,200 seats? And Hunter said that he felt in his own mind that Edmonton would get a new arena, either politically or privately, and that would be the key. Hunter said it would mean that they'd have to wait two or three years and absorb a lot of losing a lot of money by doing it. But he thinks that's a risk that the city and that he should be willing and he is willing to take. Hunter and uh, the folks in Calgary, Scotty Monroe apparently is going to run that franchise. They have until November 1st, as we mentioned, and Hunter said here's what's going to happen over the next few weeks while they figure out what's going on. Hunter says there'll be some soul searching to do. Let's just say we're taking a real serious look. Hunter says he is impressed with the ideas and the organizational ability of the people running the WHA and the only thing that could stop a team in Edmonton is the lack of an arena. George Billich, a sports writer for the Calgary Herald, well, he actually had the uh, opening night pegged as October 14th, not October 4th, in the other press release we read, which, by the way, was out of uh, Calgary as well, but they based it on an associated press release. He says it's going to be October 14th, and the first game will be played in none other than the hockey hotbed of Miami, Florida. Now, even Hal Walker, the Calgary Herald sports editor who worked for the Toronto Telegram for so many years, he's seen it all, Hal, in his years, especially in hockey. Uh, he had his opinion moved from the WHA being nothing more than a pipe dream to something that was actually looking like it could be happening. Hal's column on Wednesday of the week was a pretty interesting look at things from a veteran newsman and our overtime session coming up this week for Patreon subscribers is going to give you Hal's thoughts exactly on what he was seeing at this early point in the league's history and this is a perspective I had never seen before and it gives you some good insight into what a veteran newsman was uh, learning about the WHA. We'll also have Edmonton uh, Journal's Wayne Overland's reporting on the situation as it existed in Edmonton at the time. Wayne did get some quotes from Gary Davidson, who sounded very realistic in his approach to founding a second major hockey league. And again, we'll have more from Wild Bill Ender, uh, the Edmonton guy, and he's going to end up, as everyone knows, owning that first franchise in Edmonton. Now, we mentioned about the Western Hockey League. Well, the guy that we're going to kind of depend on for coverage on that is a hockey writer, Frank Gianelli, of the Arizona Republic, based in Phoenix, Arizona. He was already, at this point, sounding the warning sirens for the WHL. And he wrote that while no one in the WHL was yet pushing the panic button, the big wigs of that league actually held a meeting in secret in Seattle, Washington, 
to discuss what they should be doing to ensure their survival in the face of the WHA incursion into their territory, which looked like it was going to happen. The details, of course, were pretty sketchy, but some in the WHL were completely aware that another major hockey league on the west coast of the United States would effectively end the Western Hockey League. And there were those that were bitter that the WHL hadn't taken on the National Hockey League head-to-head when that option was being considered back in the early 1960s. And if you remember at that time, uh, the WHL was going to declare itself a major league, and there was talk back then that a franchise being placed, well, would be there. The Los Angeles Blades were prepared to make a huge offer to Bobby Hull to woo him away from the Blackhawks and play in hockey's second major league out on the West Coast. And it never did come to pass. Well, there was uh, one perspective we hadn't gotten all of this WHA talk yet. And this was the player's perspective. Terry Jones, still with us today, a young hockey writer with the Edmonton Journal. He went to the Oil Kings to ask some of the junior players what they thought. And we've got one of uh, Terry's... uh, uh, responses that he received from the players. Now it's from uh, Edmonton Oil Kings defenseman Tom Bladen, considered probably the best prospect to be drafted early in the NHL. Well, Bladen is being touted as the person most likely to be the highest draft pick from the Western Canada League. And Tom said, I think it'll certainly mean more money for everybody, but we'll have to wait and see what happens between now and then. I'd say these World Hockey Association people, if they offered me five or $10,000 more than what the NHL does, I'd probably take a swing at it. Other players mentioned that it might be a bit of a risk, but they're certainly going to listen to offers. Two more WHA points. Dan Stoneking of the Minneapolis Star had a report that focused on the WHA's unique, at least in the hockey up to this time, contracts that would be offered to players. He quoted Dennis Murphy as saying that the contracts would have a unique form of reserve clause, or better yet, according to Dennis, no reserve clause at all. The NHL, of course, had long defended that clause, saying its elimination would spell the end of pro sports in general and professional hockey in particular. But another weak brick in the NHL foundation is what the WHA was hoping to exploit. And the New York World Hockey Association said it was going to approach the great Maurice the Rocket Richard and ask him to be the at least the coach and maybe general manager of the New New York team right from the beginning. There was no response from Richard yet. This was just a rumor in a paper, but this actually would take place as we'll report in the coming weeks as the WHA seems to gain some traction. So on Friday of this week, the National Hockey League opened the 1971-72 season on two fronts and in a not-so-subtle decision on the league's part, the first two games were held on the west coast of North America. Imagine that. Could you ever thought that would happen just even 10 years ago? Detroit Maple Leafs and Vancouver and the Canucks started things off at Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver, while the Seals and the Los Angeles Kings, they started their season in beautiful downtown Oakland at the arena there 
That was the NHL throwing a bone to its weakest sister and allowing them to open the season as the only game in the United States that night. And we'll have a, a couple of re, uh, report on each of, the, of those games. Now, we decided on the uh, Oakland game, we decided to give you the Kings uh, perspective on this one with a report by Dan Hafner. He covers the Kings for the Los Angeles Times, and it was a rare occasion for the Times to send anyone to a Kings road game. But I guess given it was the first game of the year and just up the road in Oakland, the Times relented on their usual policy and allowed Dan to attend the contest. Or maybe it was just that Dan Hafner is a great hockey fan, which he was, and he might have just paid his own way no matter what. Dan Hafner reports on the Seals and the Kings. The scoreboard read Los Angeles for California for. However, the California Golden Seals outskated, outplayed, and outhustled the Kings for 57 minutes in their National Hockey League opener at the Coliseum in Oakland, and only the Seals managed to let the Kings sneak in for a tie in the final three minutes. Rookie Al McDonough and Mike Byers put in the late goals just when it appeared the new-look Seals with 11 players gone from last year's club uh, had opened with a well-deserved victory. The play of one man, rookie at that, goalie Gary Edwards of the Kings, was the only thing that kept the Seals from sewing up the win in the first two periods. Edwards, whose sparkling play during the exhibition season earned him the starting job over veteran Denny DeJordi, made a sensational debut. He made three fantastic saves in the first 40 minutes to keep the lethargic Kings even on the scoreboard. In the last period... When he and the Seals rookie goalie Gary Kurt each yielded three goals, Edwards did not have a good chance to stop any of them. But he made one game-saving stop nevertheless. Byers, getting the loose puck at the corner of the net, fired it into the corner with only 55 seconds left to play to make the score 4-4, but the Seals came within a fraction of an inch of actually pulling it out. Tommy Williams came bearing down on Edwards with 17 seconds remaining and his close-in shot from the side hit the post and failed to cross the goal line. The last three minutes when it appeared the Seals let up was the only time in the game when the Kings presented a real threat. Most of the rest of the time, either the harassing Seals forwards would break up the Kings attack or the defense, spearheaded by Carl Vadney, would turn them back at the blue line. In the first two periods, while getting only 12 shots on goal, the Kings tested Kurt only when they had a man advantage in the second period, and Jules Murat slapped the puck into the goal. The lead, only one of the Kings had all night, lasted for precisely seven minutes. Before and after, until the final three minutes, Vadney was the boss of the ice. He was simply the best player on either team. The sturdy defenseman working well with all the Seals newcomers. He killed penalties, he gave solid checks, and on a brilliant effort, put the home club in front 2-1 to one early in the third period. He broke through the defense, and on a one-on-one -on -one situation, he beat Edwards with a fake and a fast shot from about 20 feet away. Red Hoganson, one of the few Kings who played even reasonably well, he got the Kings even a minute later, but then the Seals took over, and uh, they didn't look back until the Kings got lucky and tied it at the end. 
Bobby Sheehan acquired from Montreal made it 3-2 when he shoved in his own rebound into the corner of the net and Don O'Donohue appeared to have iced the victory when he made it 4-2 with only 3.43 left in the game. But to their credit, the Kings, they didn't give up and McDonough getting a pass from the veteran Ralph Backstrom gave him new hope and Byers, who's done it all before, slipped in the tying tally. Kings 4, Seals 4. And in Vancouver, it was the Maple Leafs and the Canucks in an all-Canadian matchup. Dan Proudfoot of the Globe and Mail was at the game and he filed this report. Daryl Sittler's goal, with little more than five minutes remaining, gave the Toronto Maple Leafs a 3-2 win over the Vancouver Canucks in the opening game of the NHL schedule. The Leafs led twice earlier on goals by Jim Harrison, Sittler's center, and Paul Henderson. But each time Canucks fought back, Ted Taylor made it 1-1 in the second, and rookie Josh Gavermont showed an outstanding sense of timing by shooting in his first NHL goal to tie the game early in the third. Now, remember I said Jim Harrison was Daryl Sittler's center? That's right. Sitt was playing left wing, just like he did most of his rookie season, and he would start the season at center's here. But you'll see as we report as time goes on, circumstances would alter this case. Now, the Leafs showed the most strength throughout the game, even though they missed on many scoring chances. As Leaf President King Clancy said, I've never seen our guys miss so much. Stick around, King. There's a lot more of that coming in the next 50 years. Neither side scored in the opening period, largely because the Leafs had goalie Bernie Perrant and good fortune working at full efficiency. Vancouver starting goalie George Gardner was alert with a kick save on a shot by Jim McKenney, but all of the dangerous scoring chances appeared to occur at the Toronto end. A Canuck power play late in the period launched rookie Bobby Lalonde for the first time. Lalonde, who scored one goal and assisted on another in the Canucks 7-3 exhibition loss to the Leafs on Tuesday, wasn't taking regular shifts, but his unsanferized stature of five foot five, 150 pounds, and that may be being generous, dominated the action while Mike Pellick sat in the penalty box. Working his way out of the corner, Lalonde showed defenseman Bob Bond how Fred Astaire used to dance, and thus clear of Bond, fed the puck to Mike Corrigan. Now, Prompt made an outstanding stop, and he next had to make an even better one on Dale Talon, the Canucks' best shot from the blue line. Shots on goal in the first period were 7-5 in favor of the Canucks. Paul Henderson ding-dong one off the goal post early in the second period. The Leafs began to settle down and concentrate on forechecking. That's their game. However, they weren't coming close to spoiling George Gardner's 29th birthday and a goal. Tripping penalty to Popeil at 6.46 of the period brought out the Leafs' usually docile power play, and at first, penalty killers Taylor and Ward simply dominated. But then, Brian Spencer and rushed inside the Canucks blue line. He passed to Jimmy Harrison and his hard shot got by Gardner for the one nothing goal. That, of course, 
was scored and assisted by BC-born Leafs Harrison from Spencer, and that bought brought kind of a cool reaction from the 15,756 on hand at Pacific Coliseum. However, the appearance of Montreal-born Lalonde on the power play a minute later brought out wild cheers so you knew the home, fa- the home fans were squarely behind their team. The Canucks' Ted Taylor tied the score off a rush with Mike Corrigan, uh, two-on-one actually, on Bobby Bond. Taylor beat Bernie Perrant to the goalie stick side after he kind of faked the pass to Corrigan and he got Bernie maybe leaning a little the other way. Jim Dory, Bond's defense partner, was caught in the Canucks zone on the power play and that had created the two-on-one. In the third period, Paul Henderson backhanded the Leafs into a 2-1 lead when he surprised Gardner. Gardner didn't expect Henderson to have such a good backhand, but he certainly did. Skating in against Talon, Henderson appeared to be preparing to shift to his forehand, but then he just slapped the backhand shot, uh, and it went right past the surprise Talon, and he completely shocked George Gardner. But the Canucks again tied the score less than six minutes later uh, when the third of a series of long, hard shots beat Perrant. Gavermont succeeded, and that was his first NHL goal in his first regular NHL game uh, after previous hard slap shots by Barry Wilkins and Mike Corrigan had failed. And the Leafs would end up winning this one 3-2 to two, when Sittler would score the winner with five minutes 12 seconds left in the third period off a nice setup by defenseman Jimmy McKenney. So there you have it. This first uh, night of National Hockey League action was completed. Two games in the books, both 4-4 ties. I don't think they could have scripted that any better or if you're a hockey fan that hates ties any worse, I guess. But it was pretty decent hockey for opening season action and that of course completes our show for this weekend what did we learn this time around well we learned the red kelly of the penguins has decided to make the veteran team much younger and some veterans were going to be moved out and dean prentice was the first casualty we saw some progress by the world hockey association this week and that progress indicated that the new league was actually getting some traction although many of us figured that it was just more BS than anything else at this point. And we saw, as we mentioned, the NHL get underway this week. Hockey was back and we couldn't have been happier. So here's some of the stories we're working on for next week's uh, show. We'll have more talk from NHL opening games, and a, including a report on the first game in Buffalo's newly renovated Memorial Auditorium, and that will be, of course, the first regular season game. We have a report on how little regard the Bay Area of California actually has for the Golden Seals. It was surprising that this is a major league team And what we're going to tell you was really a little shocking. We also have shocking, absolutely unspeakable news out of Toronto next week. And we will give you all the details on this event that really shook and shaped the Toronto Maple Leaf franchise. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Can't thank him enough for all Andy's hard work. He's a real media professional. Andy will produce a podcast for you if you want him to do so. Contact me and I'll set you two guys up. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, The Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. If you ever get a chance, 
to see him perform live. Don't miss it. They put on a great high-energy show. Other musical pieces and sound effects are by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Global Mail, and of course, the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us every day on Twitter at At Hockey 50 Years. We're on Facebook, 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site, hockey50yearsago.com. Every week, this podcast is on the Hockey Podcast Network or wherever you download your podcasts. Thanks to everyone who tunes in to see our show. The 71-72 season starting. It's going to be a great year. Many, many shocking things are going to come out, including a big story next week. We hope you'll be with us all the way because we're going to be there all the way as well. And on that note, we'll see you next time. When the ice breaks.